you, Father, for your great plan of redemption. Thank you for loving us so much that you provided for us. We bless you, Holy Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for direction and utterance today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Hallelujah. I'm going to begin in Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. This is talking about things related to the nation of Israel, specifically past, present, and future events. It also includes things concerning the church. We'll point that out as we get there. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. That's talking about Israel. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his head. That's obviously the devil. And his tail drew out the third part of the stars of heaven, and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, obviously Jesus. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. That's three and a half years. It's talking about during the uh, tribulation period. And there was war in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not. Neither was there, any pla neither was there place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan. Which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives to the death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that, she was, that he was cast out into the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to that woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. That's three and a half years. From the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out the, of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth, and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, folks, this can't be talking about just Israel, because Israel, by and large, has not taken advantage of the redemption that's in Jesus Christ. Their testimony is not of Jesus. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony we read earlier. Well, that's not the Jewish people by and large. Thank God for the number of Jewish people that are saved. But primarily, that's the Gentile world. So it's talking about Israel as a representation of the people of God. Well, the people of God under the new covenant are not Israel. The people of God under the new covenant is the church. Israel doesn't have a covenant with God at this point. Their covenant, the old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, was fulfilled by the work of Jesus. But the only way you can access or take advantage of that covenant blessings, the new covenant blessings, is through Jesus, not through being born a natural descendant of Abraham. So Israel is without a covenant toward God. They have access to the covenant that the Gentiles have toward God through Jesus. But if they reject Jesus, there's no covenant left for them. Thank God that'll change. Now, did you notice here where it talked about the flood? Let me read it again. Well, where is it? Anybody see it real quick? 15? 
15. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. Then it says the earth swallowed up, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up that flood. Keep that flood in mind. There's something I want to come back to without having to turn back to this portion of Scripture. I want you to look with me to Revelation chapter 4 now. If you know anything about the book of Revelation, the first three chapters is John primarily sent, uh, recording things for the churches in Asia, the seven churches in Asia that Jesus told him to write to them and to share with them. But the prophecy, the future prophecy, really begins in chapter 4. Verse 1, after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show these things which must be hereafter. We know that the end of time is upon us. The way things are happening and the way things are accelerating, just a year ago, who would have imagined the things that we're seeing now? Who would imagine that the greatest, strongest, best country in the world would destroy their own economy over a, a virus that's not even as severe as ones that we've had before? Who could have predicted that? Well, anybody that did predict it, it certainly did it by the revelation of God. I want you to notice that John's revelation begins with a rapture. The voice that spoke to him said, come up hither. Come up hither. There's a lot of argument and discussion, theological discussions about when the rapture is, whether the rapture is real, when the rapture will take place. You've got pre-tribulation rapture believers. You've got mid-tribulation rapture believers. You've got post-tribulation believers rapture believers who's right they all are rapture is a concept that's mentioned seven times in the bible the first is the first one we experience or see anything about is enoch enoch walked with god and was not for god took him enoch was caught up into heaven in bodily form There's some speculation about whether Moses was raptured. Now, you may be thinking that the Bible says that Moses died and God buried him in the mountain. But in the book of Jude, it talks about Michael, the archangel, resisting the devil who disputed about the, the body of Moses. Why would the devil dispute over the body of Moses when he's been dead all these years? What dispute would there be? It'd be real easy for Michael, the archangel, or anybody that deals with the devil on that point to say he's buried in the mountains, just like the Bible says. But you remember at the mountain of transfiguration, it was Moses and Elijah that appeared unto Jesus. Elijah is the next one that the Bible talks about. You remember the chariots of fire came down from heaven and took him up. What is that if it's not rapture? Jesus was raptured. Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was giving his disciples the last minute instructions. And then a cloud appeared from the sky and Jesus rode the cloud back into heaven. That's rapture. So John's revelation of future events not the beginning of the book, but the beginning of the revelation of future events. Starts with the instruction to come up hither or come up into heaven. I heard a voice, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show these things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. That sounds like the twinkling of an eye. Instantly he was caught up into heaven. And he saw God on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow around about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders. 
sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. Now who are these 24 that are seated in thrones in the throne room of God? Well, the Bible talks about the 12 tribes of Israel. Moses sent one person from each of the 12 tribes to spy out the promised land, you remember, in Numbers chapter 13. So if these are elders, that's a church term. They're leaders. They're representative of others. Well, if God had 12 people of the Old Testament representing the nations of Israel, the tribes of Israel, then these other 12 must be representations of the church in the New Covenant or in the New Testament. Mine is the third on the right. Look me up. If you get there, that assumes you're going to make it. But notice that the 24 would represent the church's, uh, the representation or the representatives of the church in its entirety. John sees the church before the throne of heaven. What's mind-boggling to me is John saw himself. He has to be one of the representatives of the church. Of course, he couldn't say anything about that. Because everybody knows that that would break the time-space continuum. <laughs> but he sees the church. He sees the church in heaven. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. In other words, the Holy Spirit is there in its entirety. Well, there can't be any church left on the earth then. Because if the Holy Spirit is in its entirety in heaven in that point in time and there was anybody that was left that was saved on the earth then the Bible would be a lie when he said the Holy Ghost will never leave you nor forsake you. So where the Holy Ghost is the church has to be. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like under crystal Now turn with me to the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within, and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals. Skip down to verse 8. And when he had taken the book, this is Jesus, obviously, the four beasts and four, 20, four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and has made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Well, whoever this multitude is, whoever this sea of crystal is, whoever this is that's before the throne was redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Who could that be other than the church? Chapter 6. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder and of the four beasts, saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a boat. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now some people say that's Jesus. But who would carry a bow without arrows? The implication here, or the, the, the specific truth that it's identifying, is talking about the Antichrist. He looks like the rider of the white horse. He goes forth to conquering and to conquer. 
Jesus has already done that. It's talking about the Antichrist. Now you remember in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we may go and read that in a little bit, but it talks about the Antichrist is unable to be revealed. The spirit of the Antichrist, the work of the Antichrist is already going on. But the man cannot be revealed because there's something holding him back. Well, what is it that's holding him back? The church. As divided as the church is around the world, as powerless as the church appears to be around the world, the power of the Holy Spirit that's in us is sufficient to stop Satan from bringing forth his champion. Can you imagine the power of the church if we acted on it? See, most of the church world that makes up this hindering force, this withholding force, what percentage of the body of Christ do you know that's praying according to their authority or using their authority on the earth? I hate to venture a guess. The number might be so low it would be depressing. But even at that, the power that's in the church on the earth is sufficient to stop the devil's greatest effort from coming to pass. Well, then what can the power of God do in you and me when we act on it concerning the devil's power? Jesus said in, John, in Luke chapter 10, when the 70 returned from the ministry that he sent them out to do, Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Well, that we read about that in chapter 12. That was before the beginning of the earth, or the earth as we know it. He said, Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Folks, you really do have power over the devil. You really do have authority over the devil. Now, we need to be careful how we use those words because authority means delegated power and power means ability. We don't have ability over all the work of the devil, but we have authority over it. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Well, that doesn't mean the devil doesn't have power. It means that Jesus has authority through his sacrifice, through his victory. He has authority that he's delegated to us. So I saw and behold a white horse and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him and he went forth conquering and to conquer. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red and power was given to him that sat upon to take peace from the earth. Notice where the devil's attack is going to be. Now, Isaiah 26, verse 3 says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. But the church has been removed from the earth. And so here's this individual riding on the red horse. And power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. Now we know this is what's spoken of in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 38 and 39. The war that begins is Russia and Iran and a collection of mostly Muslim countries that attack Israel, and we know that that's the beginning of the seven-year period of tribulation. Tri the tribulation period starts with the war that the Russia and its coalition armies bring down from the north to invade Israel. Now, we don't know if there's any time between the rapture of the church. Notice the church is gone before that starts. 
We don't know if there's any time between the rapture of the church and the tribulation period. And by that, I mean growing up in the Baptist church, we talked about, or they talked about rapture, taught us about the rapture of the church. But we assumed that if the rapture was on Friday, then the war started on Saturday. And that may be the case. But there's nothing in the Bible that really says so. Can you imagine what the earth will be like when the church is instantly removed? How is the news media going to cover that? They will still be here, you know. How in the world are they going to cover that? Paul cautioned Timothy. He encouraged him to preach the word. He said, for the time it will come when they, the people won't endure sound doctrine. But they'll look for teachers to tell them whatever they want to hear. He calls it or says that they'll have itching ears. And it says that they would be willing and determined to abandon the truth for fables, fictions, theories, myths. You've got half of the country thinking stupid things now that aren't true. And with the ability to check out and find out what's true, almost half the country chooses to believe the lie. What do you think things will be like after we're gone? After the only withholding force that the Bible speaks of in the whole earth. What would things be like five years? Let's say that there's five years between the rapture and the tribulation. What would the earth look like at the end of that, those five years? We see things going around, taking place around us that most of us would never have considered to be the case. You've got cities that are planning to defund and dismantle their police departments. So far, the only ones, the major ones that I see supporting that are the ones that are rioting and doing violence. Well, if they're getting away with it now with the police departments in force now, what are things going to be like then? Without police force or police officers, there would be nothing to stop the lawlessness of the, of the, the, the age. Now, folks, in Revelation chapter 12, I read that again this morning, just like I did last Sunday morning, because I want you to see something. Everything is about the devil waging war against God. And the only way he can wage war against God is by attacking his church, his people. If the lawlessness takes place that many are pushing for, then who is there that's going to speak up? I'm talking about in our day. I'm not talking about in a hypothetical situation after the church leaves. Who's going to speak up against lawlessness? Well, we would assume that it would be the church that does so. It might turn out to be a minor percentage of the church. But who else is going to speak out against lawlessness if not the people of God? So when the devil is waging war, and the people that are involved in it, by and large, I don't think they're skilled enough or knowledgeable enough in the, the things that we know about Revelation to be coming from that angle. When lawlessness begins to take place, and it's part of what Paul said. Remember when Paul wrote to Timothy and said, in the last days perilous times shall come. He talks about the behavior of the people. The violence of the people, the fierceness of the people, the lawlessness of the people. So the people that are pushing this defund the police and all the other nonsense, pulling down statues, That'll really do good, won't it? The ones that are pushing all this stuff, 
by and large, are trying to affect the political landscape of the country. Many people don't even know they're fighting against the church. But if they succeed in everything that they're attempting, I'm talking about the left, I'm talking about the Antifa and others that support them. If they accomplish everything that they're after, it'll wind up setting the church in the center of the bullseye. We are literally one step away from the church being the target of the world political system. One thing I like about the book of Revelation, it used to scare me when I was a kid, hear people talk about these things, and locusts with teeth of iron and things like that. Scared the bejeebers out of me. (laughs) But one of the things, now that I know better, one of the things I really like about the book of Revelation is it's a collection of things that the devil is going to try to do that God thwarts. It really is the revelation of Jesus, not the revelation of terrors. So we see the church in the throne room of God before any of these seals are opened that begin to pour out wrath upon the church during the tribulation time. Look with me to chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 1 just because I like it. And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, or on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God in their forehead. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Then it names the tribes and talks about 12,000 from each one. Skip down with me to verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes and palms in their hands. Folks, this is the mid-tribulation rapture of the Jews that had been saved or entered into salvation through the ministry of the 144,000. The 144,000 are Jewish evangelists that are raised up by God in one of the first several days of the tribulation period when Russia and its coalition army comes down to invade Israel from the north through Syria. The Bible goes into detail to tell us how God destroyed those invading armies in one 24-hour period. It also tells us about the destruction. Ezekiel tells us about the destruction that takes place in these countries that are removed from the battle in Israel itself. But because they support, the countries support this coalition army of Russia and Iran and mostly uh, predominantly Muslim nations, It says only a sixth part is left alive in those countries. Folks, in one 24-hour period, God basically wipes Islam from the earth. Well, the 144,000 began to minister primarily to the Jews, but not only to the Jews. It tells about people that come from other nations. You know, I wonder if there are going to be people that have heard the salvation message and rejected it for whatever reason, whatever fleshly reason, and that would be the only reason there would be to reject Jesus. But for whatever fleshly reason they resist or refuse to accept Jesus, maybe they have loved ones. Maybe it's an unsaved husband 
who sees his wife and maybe other of his family disappear. And he's going to know that this is what the Bible was purported to say. There could be a huge number of people that are saved right out of the gate. But we'll have to endure the first three and a half years of the tribulation period until the second load comes along. The scripture tells us that this is three and a half years into the tribulation period when this great multitude of many nations and kindreds and people and tongues clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. Notice the palms in their hands. That's primarily Jewish worship. The church doesn't have much to do with palms as a part of our worship. But it points to the fact that this great multitude, even though it's a mixed multitude, is predominantly Jewish. So they cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And they, all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. Verse 13, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? Where did they come from? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation. So there is a rapture during the middle of the tribulation period. So all the mid-tribulation rapture folks are, are right. It's just not the first load that goes. I don't think it's so important to believe whether or not we believe in pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, uh, mid or post-tribulation. The important thing is get on the first ride that comes. Amen. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They've washed their robes. The implication is they had robes. The robes of righteousness that the Bible talks about belong to us. They had those robes offered to them. But through the rejection of Jesus, those robes became soiled. But through experiencing the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, somewhere in that first three and a half years, they accept Jesus. And the Jewish believers are identified as having robes that were washed. Well, folks, a robe of righteousness can't be soiled. But, of course, they had the promise under the old covenant and rejected Jesus. But once they accepted him, then those old covenant robes are made new and their righteousness is made of God. Now look with me to, to uh, 1 Thessalonians, or 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Paul is saying that some people have been told that the day of Christ has already come and gone and they missed out. But Paul refutes that and says, let no man deceive you by any means. Well, then that tells us that that's one of the ways of deception that the Bible, that the, the devil has tried to use. If the devil travels only one road and that's through deception, then one of the things he's going to try to deceive some of the church about is that they missed the plan of God for their lives and that it's too late for them. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. He's talking about the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things? 
We know that the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, the devil tries to put himself off as a man of peace. But at the three and a half year mark, he goes into the temple, the restored temple, which Israel is just standing on ready to rebuild. They've already got the materials. They've already got everything that they'll need. They're just waiting for the political climate to change so that they can reconstruct the temple. Now, whether that comes about as a result of God defeating the enemy armies that come against Israel in that one-day period, first day of the tribulation, or if it happens some other time prior to that, we don't know. But it certainly would fit, at least in some ways, that in that first 24-hour period of the seven years of tribulation, when Islam is basically wiped off the face of the earth, with the exception of the, uh, the work of Islam in the Far East, Indonesia, Philippines, and some of the African nations, if there's no opposition, there's nothing to keep Israel from rebuilding the temple. That's the only thing that keeps it from happening now is the threat of war between Islam and, and Israel. So at the three and a half year mark, the Antichrist walks into the temple and finally says, okay, all gloves are off, I'm God. Israel is still there when that takes place. But then immediately thereafter, they're caught up into heaven. You remember I told you in Revelation chapter 12, pointed out about the flood. Let me draw your attention to something else. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 19 says this. You'll recognize some of the, the verse. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy shall come in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. We've heard that. We're familiar with that last half of the scripture. When the spirit... When the devil comes in like a flood, the enemy shall come in like a flood. The Spirit of the Lord shall lift up a standard against him. You know what that word standard means? It means to vanish. It means to vanish. He's talking about the great multitude. He's talking about when the enemy comes and after the Antichrist declares himself as God... He focuses on one and only one thing for the next three and a half years. And that is the destruction of Israel. But those Israelites who have become Christians and accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior during that first three and a half years of the tribulation are snatched up so that the Antichrist has no ability or opportunity to destroy them. That's what I was talking about earlier. Time after time after time, the devil's champion, the Antichrist, makes threats about what he's going to do. And they, none of them come to pass. The Antichrist identifies himself as the God of all things. And then one climate crisis after another begins to take place. To show that even though he claims himself to be God, he can't control the weather. And the earth that he claims to have control over resists him at every hand. After the mid-tribulation rapture of the great multitude, the Bible talks about the two witnesses that established themselves in Jerusalem. And boy, are they a thorn in the side of the Antichrist. They're given power to affect things in the earth and to control the climate in many ways. They breathe fire out of their mouths and destroy their enemies. So the Antichrist goes to take them under arrest or capture, capture them. And they speak words out of their mouth and their enemies are consumed. You'd think the God of all things would have known about that. Finally, 
The two witnesses die. And he puts them on TV as a worldwide spectacle. But after three days, they're raised again from the dead. And then they're raptured. Folks, God's got something about snatching his people off the earth. He's really into it. Even the last rapture is when at the end of the tribulation period, the people that are saved over the last three and a half years of that tribulation period are caught up from the earth to meet Jesus and his saints that he brings with him from heaven. And then they come right back down to the earth. So you've got a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. You've got a mid-tribulation rapture of the mixed multitude. And you've got a post-tribulation rapture. And the Bible doesn't identify the, the nationalities of them. But again, I would imagine it to be predominantly Jewish. Let me read again from 2 Thessalonians. Let no man deceive you by any means. Verse 3. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember you not that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what withholds that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. It doesn't even tell us that he has to do anything about the devil, folks. The devil is destroyed by the brightness of his coming. The devil is destroyed as far as his place and authority on the earth is concerned. By the glory of Jesus. Paul wrote some interesting things about the glory of God. He reminds us of when Moses was in the mountain for 40 days, which afterwards he brings down the Ten Commandments. And the Bible tells us about the awesomeness of the power of God that was seen. The children of Israel have been commanded to stay at the foot of the mountain and stay uh, uh, some distance from the mountain itself. Because on top of the mountain, there's darkness and lightnings and thunders. Thunders and shakings like they've never witnessed before. And they looked up into the top of the mountain and said nobody could survive that. That's when they talked. Aaron into making them a golden cow so that they could worship. Now, folks, think about how stupid this is. You can look on the top of the mountain and see thunders and lightnings and blackness of smoke as a display of God's power. They know why Moses is up there. And so they say nobody could survive the obvious power of God on top of that mountain. So let's make a cow. Do you see the, the, the absolute absurdity of that? Well, I wonder what men will do in the last days. We'd like to think that if signs and wonders and miracles began to operate in the church or the church began to operate in them, that that would bring everybody into the family of God. But folks, people that need to see a sign don't change when they see it. Thank God that's not us. Thank God that's not us. So back to my original thought. After Moses comes down from the top of the mountain, he wasn't aware of it. He wasn't aware that the change 
that took place in his body and his flesh by being in the glory of God for those 40 days. But he instantly finds out when he comes back down to the people. You remember he gets mad and breaks the stone tablets. But the people look on him and his face is shining with the glory of God. Now folks, Moses isn't saved. He didn't have this glory of God on the inside of him like we do. He was unsaved. But even his flesh was affected by the power of God's glory. So much so that they asked him to put a bag on his head. They called it a veil on his face, but what else could it be? Folks, we've got biblical evidence that these masks are demonic. <laughs> the masks aren't about keeping you safe. The masks are about you submitting to government authority. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't wear them. But that's what it's all about. Everything is about a war between God and his people by the devil. Everything. Well, where did we leave us? Verse 8, and then shall that wicked be t revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of, of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There comes a point where God says, okay, you've made your choice. God told the prophet in the Old Testament to leave Ephraim alone. He was praying for, he was trying to stand in the gap for all of the children of Israel. And Ephraim was one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And God finally told him, leave Ephraim alone. He's joined himself to his idols. There comes a point of commitment to unrighteousness where God says, okay, your choice. Then he leaves them alone. It's not that he withholds salvation from them, but that he sees their commitment to be such that they void their rights to salvation. Folks, Jesus is coming soon. The Bible gives us information, foolproof information, about when Jesus is coming. Not the day or the hour. But for example, he said in one place, Jesus told his disciples in one place, to behold the fig tree and the other trees. Well, the fig tree always represents Israel. He said, when you see the fig tree begin to bloom, you'll know that's the generation where Jesus will return. Well, he's talking about Israel becoming a nation again, and that took place in 1948. Then he said a little bit further about Jerusalem, which is certainly a big part of Israel. Well, in 1967, there was a six-day war which restored Jerusalem to Israel as a part of the nation. And Jesus said, the generation that sees Israel, uh, sees Jerusalem come back into the fold, the territory of Israel, is the generation that Jesus will return. So you got two dates, two periods of time, 1948 and 1967, that are both claimed to be the generation that will see Jesus come back to the earth for the church. Well, the only question is, how long is a generation? I think people identify a generation, most people identify a generation as being 40 years. 
But there's nowhere in the Bible that it says that. I guess, Beth and I were talking about this the other day, not sure where people get the idea, but I, I, I imagine that it's because of the 40 years that were spent in the wilderness. That was the generation that had to die out because they rejected God in Numbers 13. So everybody from age 20 and up died in the wilderness. Well, there were people that were age 20. The youngest would have been at age 20. They wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, so that would have made them to die at 60 or younger. And remember, Moses lamented that people were dying before their time when they were in the wilderness. He was lamenting the fact that people would only live to be 60 or, uh, I'm sorry, 70 or 80 years if they were particularly strong. So we have no scriptural basis to identify that a generation is 40 years. But the generation that sees Israel becomes a nation in Jerusalem to be restored to their control. They're the ones that will see Jesus. Well, here we are in 2020. That's 52 years, uh, 72 years from 1948 when Israel was restored as a nation. I'm not sure how long a generation is. And the Bible can't give us definitive information about it because then we'd know when Jesus is coming. And that's a secret that's kept secure in heaven. Jesus said he didn't even know. Now, the reason that Jesus doesn't even know is because Jesus would show us everything that he knew. He made that promise to us. So the day and the hour is hidden even from the Lord. But folks, it has to be soon. It has to be soon. How long would a generation have to be? Well, as I said, it's 72 years up to this point from when Israel was made a nation or became a nation in 1948. Add another 19 years to that. And you get into numbers that are beyond man's lifespan. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. Well, who's he coming for? The Bible says he's coming for a glorious church. I think the glory of the Lord, well, let me say it this way. I think the condition of the church has to be different than the norm that what we have come to expect in two ways. One is that the glory of the Lord has to be restored. Signs and wonders and miracles and great power. That's going to be the condition of the church when Jesus returns. But then second, and the second one may even be more important than the first. Secondly, the church is going to have to start operating in some wisdom. Operating in the wisdom of God to a degree where we see through the things that are taking place around us and recognize the importance of what's going on. Without wisdom, then the church can't operate as the church was intended to be. 
if the church is caught up in the same fears of the earth, the same fears of the un unsaved, then how are we going to make a change or help anybody? There's only one thing Jesus is waiting for. There's no prophecy yet to be fulfilled. There's only one thing he's waiting for, and the Bible tells us in James chapter 5, verse 7, that that's the precious fruit of the earth. He's waiting for a harvest of people. He's waiting for a Holy Ghost-initiated outpouring that sweeps multitudes into the kingdom of God. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll close with this. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul said, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love of, unto all saints, I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of, my, of you in my prayers. So this is something Paul prayed over and over and over. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now of all the things Paul could have prayed for the church, this is what he prays. I believe he prayed this not because of his own ideas or his own thinking, but that it was inspired by the Holy Ghost. Amen. Paul talked about very specifically the worst thing, the, the most difficult burden he had was the care of all the churches. It doesn't mean he enjoyed his imprisonments or his beatings or his torture or being shipwrecked and left in the sea for a number of days. doesn't mean he enjoyed any of those things, but comparing those things with the care of the churches, they didn't even measure up. Well, if he has such a concern for the care of the churches, and we know from several of the things that he wrote in his letters that the devil would come in after he left and sow false doctrine, send false apostles and false teachers and false prophets to uproot the sure sound doctrine that he had taught them. That's what the care of the churches was such a burden on him about. Well, if it's such a burden and he knows God wants them to survive, then doesn't it stand to reason that he would have besought God and asked the Holy Spirit to show him what to pray, what to believe for, and so forth? That makes perfect sense to me. And here's what the Holy Ghost gave him. These are Spirit-inspired and Spirit-saved prayers. The Holy Ghost inspired him to pray these things, and then he kept a record of it. The Holy Spirit kept a record of it so we would know. I cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Folks, that means being able to see through the veil of flesh to see what's really going on and how things really are. That's what the Holy Ghost wants us to have. If he didn't want us to have it, then he wouldn't have inspired Paul to pray for it. And he certainly wouldn't have saved a record for us. Why would God save a record of something he didn't want us to have? And proof that Paul was praying these things for the people. That God would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding or your spirit being enlightened. That you may know. Not wonder about. Not guess. Not hope but that you would know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he set, raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principalities and powers and any other work or power of the devil. So Paul prays, inspired by the Holy Ghost, in days of persecution. When Paul writes these things, the church is being persecuted more heavily in some places than others. 
But nevertheless, it was generally accepted. Folks, the world is always going to be okay with the church being persecuted. We don't know it because we're not told about it. But without a doubt, the church is the most persecuted uh, segment of the population even now around the world. We don't see too much of it in America, or we haven't yet, but we will. Now, what should we say to these things? If we know that persecution is coming, should we be afraid of it? Folks, you'll find that when the church was persecuted, that was when God did, its great, did his greatest work. You'll find that the church grew more under persecution than any other time. Persecution or opposition to the devil makes you stand up and decide what you believe. It doesn't change what we believe. Only the word can do that. But it makes us decide one way or the other what we are believing. So Paul prayed that God would give unto us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. That our eyes would be opened. We could say it this way. We could say that God inspired Paul to pray for the church to have the spirit of seeing and knowing. Seeing and knowing. Folks, I believe it's more important now in the time that we live in than ever before in the history of mankind to rely on the Holy Ghost doing his work of showing us things to come. I recommend that you begin confessing that. It's what Jesus said the Holy Ghost would do. Well, if Jesus said it's what the Holy Ghost would do, why didn't he just do it? Because we have to take hold of the word for ourselves. Amen. And folks, you don't believe. Or what you really believe is what you live on. It's easier to say that we believe in God. That we believe in his promises. We believe in his promise to heal. Which really is a misnomer. We don't have a promise of healing. We have an accomplished fact of healing. But you only take possession of those things when you accept them in, into your own heart by saying them, by meditating in the Word. You remember what God told Joshua, Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law, this Word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. God never intends for you to stop speaking the Word. That's the only way that something cannot depart out of your mouth. Because as soon as you say something, it's gone. But if you're going to keep it in your mouth, you have to keep saying it. Coincidentally, that activates the power of faith to make things a reality in your life. So he said, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Speak it constantly. The purpose for doing that is so that thou mayest do according to all that's written therein. It's the doer of the word that's blessed, not the hearer. But then God tells you the payoff. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. One translation says, then thou shalt deal wisely in the affairs of life. Well, you couldn't have much success in life if you didn't deal wisely in the affairs of life. So he's saying that the word of God becomes the power to prosper you. The word of God spoken by your lips from your heart is the source of power that leads you into victory. And without that, you'll never have any power. And that's what the majority of the church world is, in my opinion. They may love God with all their hearts. They may believe God wants good for them. But if they're not speaking the word, it'll never become a reality in their lives. 
the victory Jesus paid for with his blood. Will in this area at least be for naught. These are exciting times. They can be frustrating times. But that's why it's so important for us to watch the right things. Keep our eyes on the things of God. Incline our ear to his sayings. Let them not depart from before our eyes. And to keep them in the midst of our heart. For God's word is life unto those that find them. And health to all their flesh. Thank God for the work of the Holy Ghost and the power of the Word. Hallelujah. Well, we want to have communion this morning before we go.